Epitaphs on gravestones are interesting and sometimes surprising. One that I read recently says, Remember me as you pass by. Where you stand now, so once stood I. Where I am now, soon you will be. Prepare for death and follow me. Death is the great equalizer of all mankind. The young and the old, the rich and the poor, the educated and the illiterate, the abled and the disabled, the strong and the weak, the healthy and the unhealthy, the arrogant and the meek, the vigorous and the weary, the best of our society and the worst of our society, the free and the imprisoned, all races, all creeds, all classes, male and female, death affects everyone. And no one gets out of here alive. And no one gets to take any of their earthly possessions, their accumulations, their wealth, none of it. Nobody gets to take any of that with them. Death is the equalizer, the great equalizer of all mankind. And it is that powerful. It is a power that ends earthly dreams. It ends earthly hopes. It ends earthly aspirations. And some people get cut down in the prime of their life. Others get to live longer than the average. But still, they have to depart from this life. Some die quickly, while others will linger for years before death finally knocks on their door. Some die of diseases or old age, while others' uh, passing is a result of injuries or accidents. COVID-19 has taught us that epidemics can take large swaths of our population in one fell swoop. And for the first time since World War II, the average lifespan in America has dropped a year and a half because of COVID. Without question, the most painful deaths there are on this planet are when children die and parents, grandparents, and siblings have to lay them to rest. Often these deaths are the results of tragedies, accidents, natural disasters, fires, violence, and childhood diseases. And loved ones who encounter this have their lives changed forever. And this is a sadness and a grief. There is a sadness and a grief associated with such deaths that never completely goes away. Speaking personally, if I could, I would give everything that I own to have the opportunity to just spend one day with my earthly father who died when I was five years old. If I could, I would ask him questions about his childhood, about his interests and his, his parents and, and his grandparents. I would ask him what life was like when he was growing up. I would ask him about what he was good at and what his weaknesses were. If time allowed, I would want to make sure to tell him about myself, especially introducing him to my wife and to my children and to their spouses and to my grandchildren, which were and are his great-grandchildren. And if there was any time left after that, I would ask him for a few hunting and fishing tips. I would also take copious notes of our time, entire time together, but I cannot do that. I do not have that opportunity because it's gone. Death has taken him. My wife Cindy, from time to time, since the passing of both of her parents in the last three and a half years, uh, will feel an urge when she's walking by the telephone to want to pick it up and give them a call. She regularly called them in the last years of their life. She would literally call them every single day. 
And just last Sunday, my brother-in-law Tom was up snowmobiling on the last weekend. They could do that before the great big melt started taking place. And uh, he had a couple of his buddies with him. And after church last Sunday, they went out for a ride along with Pastor Nathan and our son-in-law Daniel and Daniel's two brothers, Stephen and Tim. And when this crew pulled into our yard at the end of this trip, three of the sleds that were being ridden on were Stan and Donna's snowmobiles that had been inherited, as well as a number of the snowmobile suits and helmets. And this group had been switching uh, snowmobiles, so you couldn't tell who was even who. But when they came into the yard, it just, it was a flashback of them snowmobiling up here for years and years and years. And many people in the church used to go with them. Sylvester and Irene Hirsch, Carl and Sue Ershman, John Detterling took them out many times because John used to groom all the snowmobile trails around here, Cliff Swenson, Del Carlson, uh, all these people would ride with them. And it just felt like that. We looked out the window and for a second it was a flashback of, of what it used to be years ago. But as, that, as it turned out, it was just family members carrying on the tradition because both Stan and Donna are gone. Death has taken them. Some people in our day and age even hold out hope that with all the scientific advances that are going on, that people in the future may actually live hundreds of years. There are currently even people trying to cheat death by having their remains frozen in case that there may be scientific advances in the future that may be able to revive them so that they can live again. And without doubt, this is a fanciful dream because throughout human history, other than Elijah in the Old Testament, no one has ever been able to cheat death. There is one, though, who has overcome death and the one who offers human beings the restored life. And it is true. All people need to be restored to life. And who is it that offers this restored life? It's none other than Jesus. See, there is no hope in this life apart from Jesus, who is the resurrection and the life. So without Christ, people are dead. Now, if you were to go on social media, or if you were go on, to go on to a local or a national news broadcast and make such a statement that without Christ, people are dead, there would be immediate pushback. If we would go around telling people who are walking around, talking, taking nourishment, drinking water, breathing air, sleeping, and just living life, if we told them they were dead, they would call us out on that. At the same time, there seems to be in our culture this fascination with death as the movies and the literature and talk shows and documentaries and music and, and video games and broadcasts clearly point out. There are dead men and women walking. Zombies and mummies are coming back to life. There are books and movies being made about prisoners on death row being called dead men walking. And the Bible in Luke chapter 15 Verses 22 through 24, in the parable of the prodigal son, where the youngest son took his inheritance before culturally and socially it was even appropriate to do that, and he went off to a foreign country and he squandered it in, in sinful living. And he was in such a destitute state, being so broke, that he figured out these hogs he was slopping were eating better than he was. And he knew he needed to return to his father. And do you remember what the father said when the son came to his senses and came home, he said, quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. 
Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was what? Was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. And so they begin to celebrate. In Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 through 2, the Apostle Paul discusses the spiritual state of sinners' deadness. Listen to what it says. As for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live when you followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. See, before the Ephesians came to know Christ, they were dead. Human beings' natural spiritual state apart from Christ is one of deadness. And when Jesus told Martha in John chapter 11 that he was the resurrection and the life, I am the resurrection and the life, he said, he was telling Martha that through him people receive new life. And what this means is that anyone who is not a Christian, anyone who's not a follower of Jesus, does not have life. In other words, apart from Christ, we're all dead. We're a part of the walking dead. We need to be given life. And no one can make themselves alive on their own. You need Jesus to give you that life. And He is the resurrection and the life. And only God can make you alive in Christ. Look at verses 3 through 5 now in Ephesians chapter 2. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath. But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, which we just sung about, the mercy tree, God is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ. Even when we were dead in transgressions, it is by grace you have been saved. In Colossians chapter 2, verse 13, a parallel text written again by the Apostle Paul to the church at Colossae, a church located in the very same region within miles of Ephesus and in the very same time frame as the church at Ephesus. And this verse says, when you were dead in your sins and in the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made you alive with Christ. See, those of you who have come to faith in Christ know exactly what the Apostle Paul is talking about in these passages. Apart from Christ, our lives are dead. They lack purpose. They lack meaning. There, you know, there was untold uh, conflict in our lives, even plenty of self-inflicted pain. There were disappointments uh, that abounded. Relational strife was our common companion before Christ. And then Christ came into our lives. And all of a sudden, our lives took on meaning. There was beauty. And we actually could see life and things and all kinds of good things that we never saw before. Some of us have learned to manage money and do well managing money where we never did before apart from Christ. We started to go through life also appreciating others. And relationships became something very valuable to us. And doing the right thing? became important. Character became a newfound treasure in our lives. Formerly we were dead, but we came alive because of Christ. Now as we talked about death today in our introduction, I'm sure you could see that death is truly the enemy of life. And we observe this in the account of Lazarus 
And beginning reading here in verse 1, and I'll read first of all verses 1 through 16 of John chapter 11. Now a man named Lazarus was sick, and Lazarus' name happens to mean that God helps. Well, he was sick, and he was from Bethany. This is just a couple of miles outside of Jerusalem, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. And this Mary, whose brother Lazarus now lay sick, was the same one who poured perfume on the Lord and wiped his feet with her hair. So the sister sent word to Jesus, Lord, the one you love is sick. And when he heard this, Jesus said, this sickness will not end in death. No, it is for God's glory so that God's Son may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when he heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed where he was two more days days. That's not natural, folks. When we find out one of our loved ones is sick or, or near death, we drop everything and we run and we, we go as fast as we can. But that wasn't natural. That's not what Jesus did. And when he said to his disciples, let us go back to Judea. But Rabbi, they said, a short while ago the Jews tried to stone you and you are going back? I mean, that's right next door. That's a suburb of Jerusalem. Jesus, that's not smart. That's not good to do. Verse 9, Jesus answered, Are there not twelve hours of daylight? Anyone who walks in the daytime will not stumble, for, we, for they see by this world's light. It's when a person walks at night that they stumble, for they have no light. After he had said this, he went on to tell them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I'm going there to wake him up. His disciples replied, Lord, well, if he sleeps, he's going to get better. That's good. That's good. He's resting. He's going to get better. Jesus had been speaking of his death, but his disciples thought he meant natural sleep. So then he told them plainly, Lazarus is dead. And for your sake, I'm glad I was not there, so that you may believe, but let us go to him. Then Thomas, also known as Didymus, that's his Aramaic name for that, uh, said to the rest of the disciples, let us also go, that we may die with him. All right, Lord. We don't think this is smart for you to be going there to the suburb of Jerusalem when everybody wants to kill you over there. But you know what? Okay, let's go. I'll just die with you. We'll just all die together. That's what they're saying. And then we come now to verse 17. On his arrival, Jesus found that Lazarus had already been in the tomb for four days. So when they sent message to Jesus, Lazarus must have been right at the point of dying because it would take a day to travel to where Jesus was. Then Jesus waits two days. Then Jesus and his disciples travel back. So four days have transpired. And to Jewish people, that would mean that Lazarus would be untouchable because to do anything for him or attempt anything for him at that point to, to touch him or even unearth the tomb would be to be defiled. And funerals back then, you didn't have any uh, embalming. And it was in an arid climate. So when someone passed away, the funeral had to take place immediately. If you had a loved one die today, you dropped everything. And by the end of today, you'd be having a funeral for that person. That's how things happen because decomposition would start right away. Verse 18. Now Bethany was less than two miles from Jerusalem. And many Jews had come to Martha and Mary to comfort them in the loss of their brother. When Martha heard that Jesus was coming, she went out to meet him, but Mary stayed at home. Lord, Martha said to Jesus, if you'd been here, my brother would not have died. But I know that even now God will give you whatever you ask. And Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha answered, I know that he will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. That's what Pharisees believed. 
Sadducees didn't believe that, but, but the, more of the people, it was common for people associated with any of the Pharisees to believe in the resurrection. Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? And then verse 27, yes, Lord, she replied, I believe that you are the Messiah, the Son of God, who's come into this world. She's saying this in the original language, I believe and I have believed. Basically, I've always believed that, Jesus, about you. I've always held this to be true. Verse 28, after she had said this, she went back and called her sister Mary aside. The teacher is here, she said, and is asking for you. When Mary heard this, she got up quickly and went to him. Now, Jesus had not yet entered the village but was still at the place where Martha had met him. When the Jews who had been with Mary in the house, comforting her, noticed how quickly she got up and went out, they followed her, supposing she was going to the tomb to mourn there. When Mary reached the place where Jesus was and saw him, she fell at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. When Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who had come along with her also weeping, he was deeply moved in spirit and troubled. Where have you uh, laid him, he said. Come and see, Lord, they replied. And Jesus wept. Of course, that's the shortest verse in the Bible, the one all of our confirmands want to recite on Confirmation Sunday. Uh, Jesus wept. But two verses prior to that, it says he was so deeply moved in spirit and troubled. It's the, it's the phrase of a, snort, of a horse snorting. <laughs> you know, he's, he's just weeping, and he's so tore up, so upset, because the sinful world leads to this result. It leads to death like this. Then the Jews said, see how he loved him. But some of them said, could he not, he who opened the eyes of the blind man, they're still hung up on that whole blind man thing. The guy who opened the eyes of the blind man have kept this man from dying. And Jesus once more deeply moved. There it is again. You know, he's just so moved by this. He came to the tomb. And it was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, for he's been in there four days. Then Jesus said, did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you heard me. Past tense. Jesus already prayed for this moment. He's already prepared for this moment in advance. He's already asked God to do this dramatic thing. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, and they, that they may believe that you sent me. And when he had said this, Jesus called out in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. He's saying, Lazarus, come this way. A Puritan preacher, a well-known Puritan preacher from years ago said, it's a good thing he called them by name because he would have emptied all the tombs at the time if he just called people to come forth. And the dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. And Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Apart from Jesus, everyone is walking around in grave clothes, symbolic of dead people. Because the Bible says in Romans 6.23 that the wages of sin is death. The penalty for sin is steep. And 1 Corinthians 15 verse 26 teaches that the last enemy to be destroyed is death. Jesus declares in John 11.25 and 26 that he has completely 
overthrown death. I am the resurrection and the life. The one who believes in me will live even though they die, and whoever lived by believing in me will never die. Do you believe this? Jesus says here that people who believe in him will live even though they die, and whoever lives by believing in him will never die. Now, some critics of the Bible want to argue that this is contradictory, but it isn't. Jesus isn't saying that resurrection is the answer to death, like in Lazarus's case, because he went on to die later on. He wasn't raptured directly to heaven like Elijah was, and Elijah didn't die. Jesus was saying, I am the answer, which is why believing in me restores people's lives even if people die here on this earth. And this is why I happen to recite these verses at every single funeral that I've ever officiated at, somewhere around 350 now in my career. And every single time I recite these two verses because Jesus is the one who's victorious over death. So whoever believes in him will be victorious over death as well. In fact, the end of 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 54 says, death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, He gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. Jesus, by virtue of His person and work, has completely and thoroughly defeated death. He has complete, he has complete power and authority over death. And in Revelation chapter 1, when the Apostle John saw Jesus blazing in His glory, in verse 17 he said, When I saw Him, I fell at his feet, though dead. And then he placed his right hand on me and said, Do not be afraid. I am the first and the last. I am the living one. I was dead, and now, look, I am alive forever and ever. And I hold the keys to death and Hades. Jesus' self-description of I am being the resurrection and the life in John chapter 11 challenges every single reader, every single listener, every single observer to believe in Him. When he asked Martha, do you believe this? He was asking all of humanity that very same question. And sadly, many in his time, in his era, didn't believe it. Look at verses 47 to 57 of John chapter, or 45 to 57, excuse me, John chapter 11. Therefore, many of the Jews who had come to visit Mary and had, see, had, been, had seen what Jesus did, believed in him. But some of them went to the Pharisees and told them what Jesus had done. Then the chief priests and the Pharisees called a meeting of the Sanhedrin. What are we accomplishing, they asked. Here is this man performing many signs. If we let him go on like this, everyone will believe in him. And then the Romans will come and take away both our temple and our nation. Then one of them named Caiaphas, who was a high priest that year, spoke up. You know nothing at all. You do not realize that it is better for the one man to die for the people than for the whole nation to perish. He did not say this on his own, but as the high priest that year, he prophesied that Jesus would die for the Jewish nation. And not only for the nation, but also for the scattered children of God to bring them together and make them one. So from that day on, they plotted to take his life. 
Therefore, Jesus no longer moved about publicly among the people of Judea. Instead, he withdrew to a region near the wilderness, to a village called Ephraim, where he stayed with his disciples. And when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, many went up from the country to Jerusalem for the ceremonial cleansing before the Passover. They kept looking for Jesus, and as they stood in the temple courts, they asked one another, What do you think? Isn't he coming to the festival at all? But the chief priests and the Pharisees had given orders that anyone who found out where Jesus was should report it that they might arrest him. And of course, in John chapter 12, verse 10, we even find this interesting fact out as well. It says, so the chief priests made plans to kill Lazarus as well. Because Lazarus was the living proof of Jesus being the resurrection and the life. So let me ask you today, Are you one of the walking dead? Or do you believe that Jesus is the resurrection and the life? And you are numbered then among the living because you have been made alive in Christ. To come to faith in Christ is to experience resurrection. It's to experience new life. It is to die to the old way of life and be raised up in Christ to a new life. Again, from 1 Corinthians chapter 15, but going back further to verse 50. It says, I declare to you, brothers and sisters, that flesh and blood cannot inherit the kingdom of God, nor does the perishable inherit the perishable, imperishable. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet, for the trumpet will sound, and the dead will be raised imperishable, and we will be changed. For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. And when the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, then the saying that is written will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. You know, we get a new life in Christ here and now, and we long for the return of Christ, where we get to experience that resurrection life. And when Jesus Christ returns, life will be glorious for Christians. There will be no more dealing with the consequences of a fallen world, No more loss, no more suffering, no more pain, no more death. Revelations 1 verse 4 teaches that when the new age is ushered in at the return of Christ, there will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain. The old order of things has passed away. The believer will be with God for all eternity in complete joy and security. And it's all because... Jesus is the resurrection and the life. Would you please pray with me? God, our Father, today again, in this tremendous uh, passage of Scripture that is part of the great self-description of Jesus as the I Am, as part of the Godhead, we learn that Jesus is the resurrection and the life. God, those of us here who know Christ as Savior and Lord, as we have seen our lives so dramatically changed, drastically changed, God, we know what that new life is like. We've experienced that. We've tasted that. And it truly is good. And we thank you and praise you for that today. God, I pray if anybody's listening here uh, to this message today and they have not experienced that new life that's in Christ, that they would give their life to you right now, that they would surrender it, asking you to come into their life, recognizing 
that the sin in their lives is the penalty for death, and it means separation from God for all eternity. But I pray that everyone here today would receive this new life that's available in Christ and look forward to spending eternity with you in the glory that awaits the children of God. Thank you, God, that you are the resurrection and the life. And it's in Jesus' name we pray.